You are a warrior. Three twenty one status. What kind of vehicle was it? You are the very best your nation has to offer. Nine one one. Multiple shots fired. They're asking you to lead. Five. We need a Bearcat. It's up to us. So one thirty three. I need somebody that's got a visual on where the shooter is. You must be sound in mind, body, and spirit. Forty Where's the officer down? I have a rescue helicopter that wants to land and help. This is the podcast that will make you the one. The one that will bring everyone back. Trouble, we have shot fired, shot fired. Give me back up now. Because no one else is coming. We're going to have an officer shot. An officer shot. 100 block of East Street. Suspect is down. Suspect is down. This is the squad room. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the next episode of The Squad Room, the podcast that helps you, the modern warrior, achieve your full potential and fulfill your purpose as a first responder. Now, who am I? I'm your host, Gara Tesla. I'm a sergeant for a sheriff's department in Southern California. And this show is my exploration of trying to be a better, more effective modern warrior. How can you be the leader the world needs you to be? And how to be the best version of yourself possible, myself included? And how do we, can we do that every day? How can we build on the day before. If this is your first time listening, thanks for being with us. Uh, and if you are a first responder, you must understand that the central premise of this show is that as a first responder, you are a leader. And it's my firm belief that we are the absolute best our nation has to offer and that we must burden ourselves with leading others if we are to save our country. I'm not just speaking about Americans here. Of course, we have listeners in over uh, 100 countries and I can find ways that leadership is missing in any of them and that people are looking for someone to show them the way. And that is you. Uh, I have a fantastic leader on this show today, a guy who I got to meet, uh, well, about a year, almost a year ago now, uh, and got to know very well, and I'll explain that in a second. Uh, But I want to take a moment and thank our sponsors for this show. Uh, First is Blue Line Flex. Uh, This episode is brought to you by Blue Line Flex, a brand new sponsor to the show, Uh, awesome company and it's leo owned which is even better uh because uh i love supporting uh veteran uh uh, organizations and particularly law enforcement officer owned organizations or companies now blue line flex you can find them at bluelineflex.com or on instagram at bluelineflex uh justin he's the owner he's a veteran cop out on the east coast and he started the company to create a high quality apparel uh and uh workout gear that gives back to police charities. And this is why uh, when Justin reached out and we started a conversation, this is why I wanted to work with Justin. The shirts are uh, super comfortable. They're cut for an athletic shape. Uh, They've got these really cool uh, protein shakers that are metal, which keeps the protein uh, cold longer. But uh, those are all cool things. But And and, and their quality, for sure. But they give back a big chunk of their proceeds to uh, organizations that support fallen officers and support those that are struggling uh, with the aftermath of losing uh, somebody. Uh, So um, check them out. They do these uh, workout shirts that are really, like, uh, stretchy, uh, and they're perfect for, like, under the vest. Uh, They're cut long. This is what I like, too. Justin designed these so that they would be cut long for concealed carry. Uh, but I like them because they're cut long, so they don't pull up and and uh, rise out of underneath my vest uh, like a regular T-shirt might. Like a cotton T-shirt shrinks, and then it you know you bend over and it pulls up. Anyway, 
Cool product. Check them out, bluelineflex.com. Uh, tell Justin we sent you and we say hello. Now, also, this episode is also brought to you by Hardhead Veterans. And it's my belief that any assignment requires access to a high-quality ballistic helmet. Whether you're on patrol and responding to an active shooter or a SWAT cop busting down a door or a detective serving a search warrant, you need, to ser- you need serious protection for your noggin. Hardhead Veterans makes NIJ-compliant helmets for reasonable prices, and I mean very reasonable prices, that help keep you in the fight. They use the uh, top-level Kevlar fibers that are made here in the U.S., and um, it's just a quality product. I got mine a couple months ago. It took me like 30 seconds to dial that thing in, and uh, I was good to go. Uh, Bear in mind, a lot of your departments are issuing you riot helmets that have no ballistic protection. So check out Hardhead Veterans, uh, and stay tuned later in the show. I'm going to tell you more about them and how you can get an even better deal from this veteran-owned business that also employs a whole bunch of cops and gives back to law enforcement charities. All right, so my guest today is uh, Sergeant Larry Hahn. Uh, Larry is a sergeant for an extremely large sheriff's office in Southern California, Um, uh, probably one that you're very familiar with. Um, maybe not the one, uh, I'm trying to drop hints, but I agree that we wouldn't, uh, say his department's name because this is sort of outside the confines of his job. And though he's certainly not speaking for his department, we talk about some very intimate details of an event. And so we're just kind of keeping it vague, but I guarantee, uh, I, I met Larry, let's see, in October of last year. Uh, we were going through a leadership class together that was kind of like uh, grad school for sergeants where you go into in, a three-day intensive once a month for eight months. And it was actually more, uh, probably more work for me than my actual grad school was. Uh, a lot of work, a lot of reading, a lot of papers. But uh, I got to meet 23 other sergeants from around the state that all had amazing experiences. And Larry certainly topped the list with amazing experiences. He's going to come back on the show at some point and talk about uh, a moral imperative challenge he had at work uh, once that made national news. Uh, but uh, just a fantastic guy. He's always got great stories. Um, he's done a lot of work in uh, gangs and undercover stuff. And uh, you know he's been around the block. And he's got 23 years, I think he says, uh, in law enforcement. And that's after the military. Um Larry, Larry's a smart guy, and the, what he talks about today, the, the, the story is, and I'm not gonna, I'll tell you what the story is, but I'm not going to tell you the story because that would ruin what is an amazing conversation. Larry was there at Route 91 uh, Music Festival in Vegas when um, that asshat started shooting uh, and ended up killing over 50 people. Uh, Larry's got a very intense story to tell from his perspective, and he walks us through that entire event what it's like to be a cop who's, th- who's there off duty but gets pulled into that service, that calling that we talk about, right? Like Larry's uh, uh, story in this episode is an exact – it's, it's the idea behind no one else is coming, that he stepped up and he literally, literally was the one to bring some of the people back. And to bring some people to safety out of this horrific event. Uh, Larry is absolutely the one. And I'm proud to know him. Uh, I'm proud that over the last uh, 10 months we've become friends. And I always enjoy talking to him because I always learn something new. Um, he's, uh, he's just a, a solid guy all around. 
But when you listen to the story, listen to Larry talk about this and listen to, listen for those cues about how he decided to be the one that was going to bring everyone back. And he did just that. So without any further rambling from me, here's our conversation with Larry Hahn. Larry, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you here because uh, we've known each other now for, what, about seven months? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what? I'm going to interrupt myself and, and go about We just went out to dinner. Uh, we're here in San Diego for some training together. And uh, we went out in Little Italy and gorged on some pretty ridiculous pasta and lasagna. And I'm pretty sure I can't breathe right now. <laughs> yeah, me either. <laughs> so, me me either. It was, a, it was a tough cab ride. We had a, it was a tough cab ride. A shoehorn to get us into the cab, yeah. So if uh, people can hear me sweating through the mic or uh, breathing profusely and heavily, I apologize. Um, <laughs> just a little background on our night so far. But, um, no, so we've known each other about seven months. We're in this leadership class together for sergeants, uh, which would imply that you are, in fact, a sergeant. You are a sergeant, right? I am a sergeant, yes, okay, so. That would have been awkward in the introduction. Um, and we'll get to why I have you on. Uh, but um, every time we talk and you raise your hand in class, my mouth usually ends up on the floor for one reason or another because you've got either some, some amazing insights or a story or a background that just kind of blows me away um, and uh, is not something, I guess. I don't know. I, it's one of those good reminders that uh, there's lessons all around you and that you can learn from everybody around you. And you've told some stories that we uh, <clears throat> that are uh, really impactful, and I hope we can bring those on at a later date. Um, your department's going through some stuff right now that we can't speak on those things, but we have an even more amazing topic to talk about today. But I want to go back and start with um, your entry into law enforcement. Um, it's kind of a generic, corny question, but what, what brought you into law enforcement? Uh, well, what really brought me into law enforcement, I grew up in a small town outside of Seattle, Washington. Okay. And uh, initially, I thought I wanted to be a firefighter. Oh. Uh, <laughs> that's that's <laughs> that a smart move. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, hindsight being twenty twenty, that's probably what I should have did. But uh, um, I ended up uh, uh, being part of an Explorer program uh, in Washington, uh, played football, and, and uh, being a resident firefighter, EMT, uh, uh, IV defib tech, going to college to be a paramedic. And um, it wasn't until I did a ride along with the police department mm -hmm. that I realized that's uh, what I want to do. Uh, some people joke about it, about uh, fire department staging and, and things like that. But what I found sitting on the engines and in the ambulances was uh, I got uh, it was it was hard on me sitting back and watching cops be beat up. Um, and the things that were occurring and not being able to help them, I was, I, I felt frustrated. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until I did my first ride, uh, with a, a small, uh, PD in, in Washington that, that, uh, I knew it's what I wanted to do. I was addicted and that's kind of how it started. I, I, uh, decided to join the United States Marine Corps, uh, uh, stopped going to college, um, because at the time I was 19 and you had to be 21 to be a police officer. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I had always had this, uh, desire to want to be a, uh, a Marine. Okay. What 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 was the desire? Uh, my real father, uh, who was killed by a drunk driver when I was three. Uh, my mom remarried when I was eight. My real father was uh, in the army, and then uh, mm -hmm. my mom remarried when I was eight. And uh, that man was a, a gunnery sergeant in the Marine Corps. I called him Dad. And uh, uh, so to me, he, he was an important figure in my life, and and uh, he was always you know all about the Marine Corps. He was a gunnery sergeant, mm -hmm. and uh, I ended up. Uh, Given that try, I felt a, a an internal desire to want to serve my country. I thought the Marine Corps was a way to, to, to go about it, and actually went into 
um, to get an expansion. I didn't, I didn't want it to be easy. I, I wanted to be uh, I wanted to be an O three eleven, which is infantry. That was my desire. But as luck would have it, um, once I entered, um, life just had a way of taking care of me, and I was actually selected to do presidential security up at uh, Camp David in, in the White House. So not Secret Service, but you're one of the guys in pardon my ignorance on this topic, but like you see them on TV, right? When he's coming and going from like uh, Marine one and they're, you know, the crisp dress uniforms and holding the doors, like that sort of stuff. Yes. Yeah. Marine one is actually the HMX, uh, uh, uh version of what they referred to as HMX. And then you had the guards who, uh, worked at the white house. And then you also had camp David also. So a lot of times it, it may not be a lot of times it was, uh, dressed blue and whites. Sometimes it was, uh, uh, camis and, and, uh, uh, shotguns and things like that, mm-hmm. um, doing actual uh, security and not so much in a garrison or dress type of a uh, garrison or dress uh, atmosphere. Yeah. So you went straight, basic, roughly straight from basic to that assignment? Uh, no, I uh, I left uh, basic and went to school of infantry mm-hmm. in, uh, here in San Diego, uh, Camp Pendleton. And then from there I went to uh, Virginia where I went to Marine uh, Security Force schools uh, and then uh, ended up at uh, 8th and I Marine Barracks in Washington, D.C., where I did things like uh, drove for the Commandant of the Marine Corps and uh, CNO of the Navy and did uh, uh, guards of the generals and their families there in Washington, D.C. What do you think it was about you or your background or your skill set that made you uh, a candidate for that? Um, at the time, I think, uh, you know, uh, everything, the, the psychological tests were good. Uh, my written scores were good. Shooting shooting uh, scores were good. Uh, physical fitness was outstanding. But I think uh, it was more just, you know, the mindset, mm-hmm. you know, uh, your, your mind, who you are as a person. Um, the psychological testing, I think, um, probably explained more about me than I understood at the time. Um, years later, I think I, I get it now. I've had mm-hmm. time to reflect over the years. Um, but I really think it came down to who I was as a person uh, that the psychological testing picked up. Did it ever cross your mind that you joined the Marines and you'd be protecting the president? No, I went in thinking I was going to be, you know, um, fast roping out of helicopters, which I did get to do uh, yeah. later on. But uh, you know, I wanted to be on boats and uh, carrying a rifle. And what president were you protecting? Uh, this was during the uh, Clinton administration. Okay, so you were there in the nineties. Yes, and uh, there was a lot of activity going on yeah. around that time. So four years, or what, how much time did you do in the Marines? I did four years. And then you were ready to come out. You're of age to become a cop. Once I left Washington, D.C., you had to do um, a primary tour of your MOS, and uh, they, they shipped me off to a beautiful town called 29 Palms here in mm. California yes. and uh, spent some time out there. I was there probably so for, for to interject for anyone who's not from California, describe how, how not 29 Palms-ish <laughs> 29 Palms is. Uh, it's, it's all desert, uh, no water, uh, temperatures you know, could get up in the... Uh, usually hover around the 115 yeah. to mid one. It sounds like a lovely area, but literally there might be 29 palms in that entire county. Yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> maybe. If, uh, yeah, that'd be about it. Okay, so you go do an MOS tour there. Uh, I'm there briefly, and then I go to Okinawa, Japan, and uh, they, they put me on the USS New Orleans, and I'm on the, uh, uh, the LPH for a little while, the USS New Orleans, uh, and then I uh, went down to Australia, went back to uh, 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 Okinawa, uh, and finished up uh, six months there, and then um, came back to the U.S. and and uh, as luck would have it, a lot of police departments were testing at the time, and uh, the agency I worked for was one of those one of those uh, 
agencies that were testing. And uh, I got a lot of job offers, but uh, I got out in March of '98, uh, and uh, they were the first one to offer me a job, and that's mm-hmm. the one that I took. And just, uh, I mean, you you came out of San Diego. Is you're from Seattle, but you ended up in Southern California. Is this because you knew San Diego from when you started the Marines and what brought you back here? Uh, just just uh, the military did. The yeah. military said this is... So you kind of knew this area yeah, yeah. and all that. And just so people know, you work for a very large sheriff's office uh, here in yeah. Southern California. Yes, uh, very large. Uh, one of the largest. Cool. And um, and uh, what with a with a stellar reputation overall, I would think, too. I mean, that's what I understood it to be. I actually applied at your agency uh, when I was doing my ride-alongs and deciding I wanted to do this. And I remember the first day... Um, we talked about this, but you guys have a goofy PT test. And just it's, it's kind of bizarre. You like yeah. walk across a balance beam, and you pull the trigger six times with your right hand, then yeah. you pull it six times with your left, and you push a car, whatever. So you do that, and then you do the written test. And at the end of the day, they collect everybody who passes two tests, and they're like, all right, congratulations, you're going on to backgrounds. Oh, by the way, you're looking at nine years in the jail. And I did an about face and walked out of there and was like, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm out. Yeah, yeah, at the time it was uh, long. It's down to about two to three years now, but at the time it was, the average was seven to nine years. Yeah, which is which at the time was not unheard of. <coughs> so um, so y- you join up, you're, you're now uh, a deputy sheriff, um, living the dream? Yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, I uh, love the job. Um, loved everything about it. It was it was everything I thought it was going to be. Um, mm-hmm. The jail time was a little long, um, but I, I made the mess. Uh, you know, yeah. I made I, I made the most of it. And then uh, you eventually got into an assignment uh, that sounds like the coolest job uh, I could think of. Uh, one of the most dangerous jobs too. Um, but you were you were in the same realm as Jay Dobbins, a former uh, a recent guest on our show, who. ATF agent who infiltrated the Hell's Angels, but uh, what were you? What was your assignments? What 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 did you do outside? Once you got to the jail or outside the jail, I mean, obviously patrol, but what else? Yeah, I worked. Uh, I, I worked with some of our uh, directed enforcement teams, our special enforcement teams, and our our, uh, our uh, gang enforcement teams. Uh, uh, I think all in all, uh, between uh, all those details to include patrol, around twelve. 12 years of that. And you were, I mean, you worked a lot of the uh, outlaw motorcycle gangs, right? Uh, we, we had a lot to do with uh, the OMGs and things like that. Yeah, the, the, the units, the different units did, um, yeah. you know, everything. Uh, the, our special units do a lot of uh, surveillance and, and counter surveillance and things like that. I mean, you showed me a picture, and I, just to paint the picture for people, because this is obviously an audio format, but I mean, you got a full sleeve on your right arm with skulls and stuff, and yeah. you showed me this massive beard and... Uh, how tall are you? Six four, six five? Uh, six one. No, you're bigger than that, aren't you? Uh, six one, maybe well, I'm closer. To, probably, I'm, I'm, I'm a true. I'm a true. I'm a true six one. Most guys <laughs> claim they're six foot. Uh, I'm a true six one, which yeah makes it look makes me look like I'm six. So, but I mean, like you're one of those guys when you show me this picture of you doing when you're in your undercover days, and like I'd walk by you on the street, and there was I would never bet a, bet a single dollar on the fact that you were a cop. I mean, you looked that part, right? How long did you do that? Uh, again, all in all, uh, I think that whole deal was right around uh, about three years, three yeah. and a half years. Yeah. And uh, married kids at this time, or when did you? Get married? Uh, at that point, I married um, after I got out of the, out of the military. Um, mm-hmm. So at this point, I, I had uh, divorced in two thousand four. So and you had so what is that? Seven years on the job. Uh, yeah. Any kids? Uh, three boys. Three boys. Three boys. So busy home. Yes. Balancing three boys growing up and the job of an undercover cop is not an easy task. No, 
No. Uh, you know, what are the things um, it, with hindsight now? You've got 20, 20 years on? 20 years. Uh, April 20th was my uh, was my uh, 20 Two decade mark. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> you get your pin yet? I did. I did. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll get my 20-year pin around the 30-year mark, I figure. <laughs> That's usually where I pick it up. Um, you know, with some hindsight, because this is obviously a common challenge for cops uh, in, in managing these things, is there anything you could have done better? Uh, and, and, and every situation is different, and I understand that some are not recoverable, but cops who are in that position now, maybe, this is the better way to ask that question, cops who are in the position now where they're trying to juggle a career where it's demanding, they're undercover, or they're wanting to go undercover, and they've got the pole at home. H- how do you balance that? You know, if I had to go back, I think those would be the things that, that – uh, I would I would do over. I don't. It wasn't easy to balance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, you, you know. Everybody knows you miss a lot of birthdays. You're you're gone a lot. It's early mornings, late nights. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you might even be gone for a day or two. Uh, w- you know, without seeing them. So you miss out on a lot, and it does have an impact on the family. And um, so I think going back uh, to find that balance, uh, it's uh, you know you have a calling uh, and you want to do this job. Um, but it's making sure you recognize that you have that family back home too that that, that wants and needs you. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I put a lot of thought into it. Um, you know, if it's the one thing I want to do, I'd, I you know I'd, I'd like to get back some of that time. I think you hear most cops um, looking back. That's one of the things that they always uh, tend to regret. You know, is that they wish they had more time with the family. It's a shame too because it takes a lot of us some time to before we realize like crime's going to be here. The day I the day I retire, it's not like I get to clo- lock up the doors at the sheriff's office and. You know, hang up the key and be like, well, we're done here. Everything's done. Yeah. You know, pro- crime is solved, everybody. We can all go home. Yeah. Some guy's going to come in. Someone else is going to take my stripes, right? They're going to be happy to see me be go because I, I'm my leaving is giving someone else an opportunity. It's going to be here. Right. I think that's part of our struggle is like we go in thinking that we're going to save the world and we realize pretty quickly we're not going to save the world. We can only save maybe a couple people, you know, right. throughout our career. Right. But then you got to hang on to those 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 thoughts. So, you have you. I mean, you eventually get divorced, right? This eventually culminates in a divorce. Yes. Uh, but you've got a good relationship with your three boys. Yes, good, uh, they live with me. Uh, yeah. My eldest is actually uh, you know grown and moved out now, and my middle son's graduating this year, and, and my youngest lives with me. Proud dad. Uh, proud dad. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So uh, you get promoted a couple of years ago. How long have you been a sergeant at this point? T- today, as we speak. Uh, Today, uh, a little over three years. Three years. Okay. And um, how does it work in your department where you, you, know, you get promoted? What do you do? Do you go back to the jail? Yeah. Every, every time you promote my department, uh, you go back to the jail. So you'll return. Um, you'll do a, a period anywhere from, it just depends on, uh, you know, it could be three months. It could be a year. Mm-hmm. The, the average is about a, a year to a year and a half. Okay. So, uh, and then you, you, have, you have moved from the jail and you eventually get moved into training. Yes, uh, assigned to our uh, our training bureau. Yes, for, for so you're doing training. a lot of in-service training on on guys. And I've uh, and I know we're tiptoeing around your agency, but uh, just for some considerations. But uh, you, you, I've I, I went to sergeant school. What, you know what we call here in California sergeant school. It's a two week course for in, for it's like the bare minimum basic supervisor's course when you get promoted. Right. And then we call it the how not to get sued. Right. Course. Right. Um, two weeks of some real basic liability training, some real basic leadership training, and then watching Band of Brothers and uh, 
Saving Private Ryan, I think, right? right? Or When We yep. Were Heroes, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I think pretty much any post-class uh, post, uh, uh, just requires a, a Band of Brothers episode at this point, you know? Okay, so you're in training now. Uh, enjoying this job? Challenged by this job? Uh, love everything about this job. That's a... Wow. How often do you hear a cop of 20 years on say that he loves everything about this job? Yeah. It's... Uh, it, it, you know, everybody says this, but it is just as rewarding. Uh, uh, I... I oversee or help oversee about 135 field training officers mm-hmm. uh my agency has anywhere from 75 to 105 trainees uh in operations at one time um so developing them developing the ftos uh it's, it's very rewarding so you get a lot of sense of purpose now at this point in your career from guiding the new guys forward correct you know that's something i talk about a lot on the show is um and i know you've listened you've listened but uh <clears throat> this idea that we as as frontline supervisors right now can have the most impact when we train our FTOs well and we train our new guys well because I'll probably be working for one of those new guys someday, but someone else certainly is too. And if we can get them into the right mindset and the right thirst for knowledge in year one and they get promoted in year 10 and then they start passing that information on to their troops, I mean, you start to think about the lives you can affect, right? Yes, and theirs becomes a real calling within the calling itself. Yeah, especially today, um, the challenges we face in law enforcement. When when I hired on, and I went to operations, our, our FTOs at the time had you know twelve, fourteen, sixteen years on, mm-hmm. and the, the uh, average uh, field training officer today has got twelve, thirteen, fourteen months on. So there's been this degradation in training and dilution of information that's passed down. And so uh, my goal, my focus has been to to kind of reinstill that. Uh, uh, that experience um, on this younger generation of FTO, that, that sense of purpose as far as what it's like to be, um, you know, uh, an experienced FTO who's, who's been there a long time. And, mm-hmm. uh, so that's important. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that is really being the one, right? right? Being the one to bring others back and, and to guide and lead. Yep. So you're in this position for a little bit and then uh, go to last year uh, and take you there and, um, you round up some friends and you decide to take a trip. Uh, it was end of September, uh, beginning of October. Uh, I, I had uh, actually earlier in the year, uh, so tickets had, had gone on sale mm-hmm. uh, for a concert, and I bought uh, two tickets, and uh, uh, they were uh, uh, VIP tickets, and um, had decided I was going to go. Uh, for whatever reason, I don't know why I chose to go alone. I had, uh, you know, friends that I wanted to go. I had other friends who had gone as, as couples and all that, but uh, I was uh, single at the time, and I decided that I was going to go alone. I was going to eat the cost of the other uh, ticket, and and uh, just something about it made me decide I was going to go alone that weekend, mm-hmm. and uh, and went with a, a group of friends who were all there. Uh, it was a pretty large group, about fifteen people uh, total, and uh, wound up uh, going to Las Vegas, Nevada for the uh, ninety one festival. The Route 91. Yeah, Route 91. Yeah. Uh, all cops all, and spouses or a mix of people? Yeah, it was all uh, police officers or retired uh, police officers and, and uh, uh, their spouses. Mm-hmm. So you guys drove out and you're looking forward to this festival. Who was the act you were most look, looking forward to? Uh, I was looking forward to uh, all of them, you yeah. know, but uh, Aldine. You know, Aldine obviously was... Uh, the, the big headliner. He was closing out the tour mm-hmm. uh, Sunday night. and uh, But uh, I, I liked them all. So walk me through that Sunday. And, and what... Because this is a... And, and I'm not going to interrupt you much uh, here because 
you you tell it so powerfully, but um, it's such a well, just the story itself it stands on its own. Yeah. So uh, that Sunday, um, you know, the night before, I had gone out with a, a group of friends. It was it was a great weekend. Uh, the thing I remember most about the weekend was everybody was having a great time. The, there were no issues. I, I didn't. Uh, I was there for several hours, um, all three days. Uh, I didn't see any fights. I didn't see any arguments. Uh, he was having a good time. Every single person there was just having a great time. It was a it was a fun, friendly crowd. Like I said, uh, you know, people had been drinking. Um, uh, but uh, outside of that, I just remember you know everybody having a good time. And uh, I'd gotten there earlier in the day, around noon. And uh, most of my friends showed up uh, late. Uh, they they wanted to uh, they wanted to uh, we had we were at the Mandalay Bay the night prior, mm-hmm. and uh, we spent uh, it was a late night there, probably you know, about three in the morning, and uh, so they all slept in, and, and I, I got to the concert around noon that day, and it kind of hung out, did my own thing, and then most of my friends started showing up around six p.m. and uh, we had hung out and had had a few drinks and and uh, you know danced the music and talked and just did what you know what, what friends do, just having a good time, and. Uh, all, uh, Jason Aldean was getting ready to start, and uh, I don't know what it was in that moment. Um, I'd been there most of the afternoon. Uh, I know my friends had just kind of gotten there, um, so they probably weren't as tired as I was. But for whatever reason, I decided to kind of walk off and, and do my own thing for a little bit because most of my friends were couples. Uh, and, again, I was there uh, by myself. And I just walked over um, to a, a, another section and had had sat down. And uh, I don't know how, how into detail I I get, but... You know, um, one of the things I found interesting was, um, I guess, a story for me and going back to the tickets and, and going alone was mm-hmm. just how sometimes things in life happen mm-hmm. uh, and you don't know why they happen. And so me being there alone uh, that night um, led to a, uh, a blonde girl, uh, you know, kind of picking up on me. And uh, I had recognized her from earlier in the night and, and uh, she had had a boyfriend and uh, I, I told her... Uh, you know, no, I, you know, I, the, the guy was going to be upset and, uh, she was pretty persistent. He, he wasn't around at the time. He had walked off to get some food or something. And, and I told her, you know, well, probably not a good idea. And, and, uh, she wouldn't take no for an answer, you know, and, uh, I kind of looked around and was looking for a, you know, a way out of this, this awkward situation. <laughs> so I moved and she followed me and I moved and she followed me. And there was this, uh, group of girls standing behind me. And uh, I'd looked over and noticed one of them wasn't wearing a ring, and everybody's kind of laughing. You know, they had seen what was going on, and I was trying to be a gentleman and didn't want any problems with when the boyfriend came back and asked this girl if uh, if uh, she would do me a favor and, and dance with me, maybe to to back this girl off, and and she agreed. And uh, we had a short conversation. Uh, I had asked her uh, asked her where she was from, and she told me Salt Lake City, Utah, and. Uh, Asked her if she was married, uh, you know, or had a boyfriend, and she told me no. <laughs> get that out of the way. Yeah, I had to, had to get that out of the way. And um, uh, asked her what she liked to do, and she told me she liked to travel and, and she liked to uh, uh, go to country concerts. And I uh, asked her where she'd like to travel where she's never been, and she said Italy. And uh, uh, as as I sat there and I, I, I kind of looked at her for a minute, and she said Italy, I was thinking, well, I'm an Ireland guy, but okay, you know, Italy's cool. And um, asked her if uh, she'd ever two-stepped, and she said no. And I said, well, you want to try? And she smiled, and she said, yeah. And uh, I said, well, you know, come on over. And I had that extra ticket, which allowed her to be in the area 
where I was. Mm-hmm. And um, so that kind of allowed her to uh, to be there. And um, so she she came in, and uh, I remember uh, beginning to dance with her. And uh, we started our two-step, and we were about 10 or 15 seconds into it. And Aldine was playing. And uh, it was about that time the gunfire started. So I had known her all about uh, two minutes, and I think we were dancing for about 15, 20 seconds, and then uh, the the gunfire started. Um, at the time, you you know, uh, I didn't recognize that it was gunfire. It, it was it was it was definitely different. Uh, the music was loud. Um, you thought, uh, you know, initially you thought that it was the speakers malfunctioning. Um, there were people who thought maybe it was fireworks, but, uh, I leaned more towards it was the, the speakers malfunctioning. Um, little did you know at the time it was a volley of, of 30 or 40 rounds, uh, coming in. And, uh, I remember, uh, the music stopping and then the, uh, another volley of, of, uh, bullets coming in and looking around and seeing people who were, uh, struck, um, there were a few people around us uh, that were shot and killed. Um, and I remember seeing uh, the, the look in their eyes as, as uh, life was leaving their bodies. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, it was still a moment of shock, co- kind of comprehending like, okay, this is what I think it is. Um, and then trying to assess what, what the plan was going to be. And it was about the third volley of 30 or 40 rounds that were coming in when like uh, the majority of the crowd began to react and uh, people began to lay on the ground. Um, and I remember laying on the ground um, next to uh, this girl and um, uh, her name was Jen. And I remember laying there and trying to help the people around us uh, who, who were shot and uh, asking who could, you know, if they could walk, if they couldn't. Um, there were people doing uh, CPR on people nearby and um, at one point, um, the guy next to me who's doing CPR and a guy, there's another guy helping him. Um, another volley of rounds come in, and the, um, one of the guys who's doing CPR is uh, shot in the chest. So you watch this happen. Yes. This guy takes a round in yeah. the chest as yeah. he's trying to help somebody else. Yes. And uh, he, there were two guys actually, uh, you know, uh, working on him. Mm-hmm. And as that's happening, um, the sound of the rounds are very distinct. Uh, the, the snap uh, overhead. Uh, the the tink 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 is it hits the uh, the metal stage. You can hear n- these nearby. Things. Yes, uh, the sound of ricochet. Um, uh, Every one is is very distinct. I I put it to like being next to. I don't know how many people have been next to a car fire or a, or a fire, uh, but you know you get, you can only get so close, and at some point it it, it pushes you away. Um, people talk about fight and in flight and things like that. And at no point, I, I kind of put it as both. It was fight and flight. It was, it was, it was, it was both. Um, nothing about it, uh, in, in that situation, nobody knew at the time that it was 400 yards away or 36 floors in the air that, um, most people felt, um, it was multiple shooters. I think that had to do with the echo. I think uh, the music, um, that the sound of the bullets being drowned out by the music and then the music stopping made it sound like it was closer. Um, so how you internalize or process the information at the time was mm-hmm. always always changing based on the environment around you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that was the, the, one of the harder things uh, to figure out was uh, what was uh, going on. And uh, 
as I'm sitting here and I'm seeing this and I'm helping some people making sure they could walk and giving direct directions to some young ushers who, who were very brave. And, and I think, uh, you know, you, you look at all the people, um, you look at all the people that uh, get a lot of credit. I, I could tell you that the, uh, the ushers, the staff at the event was a very young crowd and, uh, very brave for, for, for their age. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to me, they look 20, 21 years old for their age to, to take direction the way they did to help the staff they way, the way they did. I just don't think they get training like law enforcement or military personnel, but they were young men and women. And, and I, I mean it when I say 19, 20, 21 yeah. years old, uh, uh, panicked i think like everybody else and rightfully so but at the same time they did their job uh, exceptionally well so i was impressed with uh with that was this the thought you had after the fact or that like as this is going on you're recognizing these people are jumping in i i i recognize i recognize it was happening uh there was a little confusion they they were misleading though some of them some of them felt like it was fireworks so it was like getting them to understand this is gunfire um some were being ushered into the direction of of gunfire again not knowing where it was coming from you, you felt you felt uh you you felt kind of you know locked in. You didn't know where it was coming you know where from. Where to go? Cause, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so in that moment, I remember laying there uh, on the ground next to uh, this this group of people and looking them in the eyes. And I remember uh, Jen, the girl I was dancing with, looked at me and she said, "I have two small kids at home, and they they can't uh, uh, grow up in this world without me." And it was in that moment um, I thought about my kids. Uh, I'm a single father. Uh, and it was in that moment that I just, I knew I wanted to make them proud and that I couldn't let anything happen to those people. And I'd only known them for two minutes. And I went from laying by their side, uh, over the top of them as another, uh, 30 or 40 rounds came in. And, uh, that went on for about, uh, two volleys or what I refer to as two volleys. I don't know if he was changing guns or magazines. I don't, I don't know that all the facts are out there yet. Um, but, uh, you know, I felt the need that I had to do it. And, and I remember thinking, you know, just make your kids proud. And, and uh, you know, this, this, this is something you got to do. It wasn't about leaving them there. I, I didn't know these people, but uh, um, I, I felt the need to to, to want to protect them. Mm-hmm. I think that's a natural and understand, understanding uh, instinct. I think most any cop can relate to that, that idea. Uh, or at least we hope we can. You know, because... There's only a handful of cops now who've ever been involved in Las Vegas, but you you hope that you're that guy yeah. when it, when the time comes. So what? So you're lying on the ground with these girls. What happens next? Do you do you go find your friends? Do you know they're cops that got themselves taken care of? Do you get these girls out of here, or do you hunker down in place, or what do you do? No, the the initial mindset was that I knew that where we were, we couldn't stay. Again, I, I put it to being uh, next to a hot car fire. Uh, mm-hmm. There was nothing you were going to. It was a, it's what I, I, the only way I could describe it is a fight and flight mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, you weren't allowed to have a firearm in the venue. Um, it's wouldn't have done any good anyway. Right, no. Yeah. It, it, and not know, again, not well, knowing that it was 400 right. yards away and 36 you floors You might have felt a air. better sense of purpose or a sense of direction if you had a fire under Right. Get out of there. But yes, you're right. Right. Um, but there are things that you live with. Um, you know, I remember the thought of relief uh, as the gunfire shifted from my location onto other people. Um, and it's a guilt. Uh, it's survivor's uh, regret or remorse. Uh, it's it's something I'm not proud of. It's, it's something I work through um, to this day uh, because you feel guilty over the relief. I mean, uh, to me, these people were my heroes. Uh, you know, some people would claim that I'm a hero and I protected them, but I don't feel that way. I feel like a victim. I think like, uh, everybody else who was there, I think those people who lost their lives are, are my heroes. But, uh, 
and I, and I mean that. And, um, you know, in those moments, um, not knowing what the outcome was going to be, I don't think anybody really knew. Uh, nobody expected to leave there. Uh, so it was what I refer to as a fight and flight. You knew this was automatic gunfire, but again, and it was coming from this direction. You, you didn't want to go here, uh, you know, in, in this direction. But you actually thought that you're going to run into somebody over here. A second shooter. So well, you thought it was multiple. multiple. I mean, it, in my mind, um, it, 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 I thought three to four for sure. A coordinated attack. Yeah. Correct. And, and a lot of that was because you were reading what the crowd was doing. And the crowd was constantly shifting um, direction. And some of that was because as people were going in one direction, they were shot in the back and would fall to being shot in the back, but people would assume that they were shot to the front, and so mm-hmm. the crowd would shift back into um, gunfire. Uh, or somebody who was shot a minute or two minutes ago would you know, succumb to their wounds and would fall, and people would think, oh, they were just shot, and then would mm-hmm. shift again. So it took, um, I would say it probably took about you know minute three or four, maybe even five, before I realized, okay, the bullets are coming from here. Um, and that's when I had to shift the group of people I was with and protecting, um, uh, to, to go in front of me because I realized, okay, the bullets are coming from behind us. We need to move in this direction and I'll, I'll shield you from the gunfire. And they were pretty upset when I told them you need to go in front of me because they too thought, um, the bullets were, were, were coming from in front of us. So when I made them go to, to my front and I said, I'm going to go to the back. Um, they were upset. They didn't understand, um, that the bullets were coming from behind. So I remember having to take a knee and calm them down and tell them, look me in the eyes, you know, this is what we got to do. The bullets are coming from behind us. You know, I'll take a bullet before you do. You need to move in this direction. I'm not going to let anything happen to you. And in fact, when they tell the story, uh, each of these uh, women, as, as, as they tell a story uh, back home where they're from, they say that it was uh, very calm, that it was very calm, um, that it was like uh, they felt like we were just walking out of a mall. Um, I think I was more reassuring. I, uh, you know, in those moments, I, I didn't plan on, on leaving. You didn't know what was going to happen. When I graduated from the academy, uh, I went to our equipment room to get the rest of my gear, the stuff I didn't need in the academy, but now I needed when I was on patrol. And they handed me an ill-fitting, awkward, and extremely painful riot helmet. This helmet was probably older than I was, uh, and, it was pro- and it was something that had probably lasted several careers of the people who had worn it before me and it was sweat stained and it literally was like Vietnam era quality inside uh, padding and it it was horribly uncomfortable and I've been in a few incidents in my career in which I had to deploy that helmet and never once was I comfortable or most certainly confident in it it was heavy, it was bulky and it left me with a lasting headache if I wore it for more than a few minutes I wanted a helmet I could trust but like most of you I had a hard time spending like $1,000 or more on a helmet that I might never need. But that's the problem, isn't it? I may never need my ballistic vest, but I still wear it every day. Well, about a year ago, I got introduced to a company named Hardhead Veterans. It's an app name for a veteran-owned company that makes ballistic helmets. The founders come from the special operations community, and their goal is to make the world a safer place for cops. Several members of the Hardhead Veterans staff are actually active-duty police officers themselves. They reached out, and we started talking about the challenges of policing in today's environment, our equipment needs, and what it's like to be a cop today. They know that we don't make a lot of money, and that it's hard for us to decide how to spend our uniform allowance, if we even get one. 
and that most departments are not even outfitting their officers with ballistic helmets. They're simply giving them riot helmets without any protection. So that's where hardhead veterans decided they were going to focus their small business, making top quality helmets at a real reasonable price that cops can afford. They use high-end DuPont Kevlar fibers made here in the U.S., and their helmets not only meet NIJ standards for level 3A armor, they exceed them. They're so confident in their helmets that they publish all this ballistic data on their website at hardheadveterans.com. Now, I got my own Hardhead Veterans helmet a few months ago, and the experience I had is the reason this ad even exists. From cutting the tape off the box to getting the fit dialed in onto my head, it literally took me probably 40-45 seconds. It was that quick. A few clicks of the padding system and the chin strap, and I was good to go. With my last helmet, the one that the department gave me, I spent, I think, 40 minutes and about $100 buying an aftermarket padding system that I had to wedge in there and uh, cut pieces off because it just didn't fit. And though it made the helmet softer, it still was tight. That's not the case here. The helmet's really light, too, and the above-the-ear models come with all the modern attachment adapters that allow you to strap on NBGs or comm systems. And for those of you in SWAT assignments, this is really a perfect helmet. Everything you need to operate without the $1,000 or $1,200 price tag. Their helmets come with a 10-year warranty, and they offer a bulk purchase discount, so if you're in charge of purchasing at your department, make sure they know that we sent you over. For anyone who wants to purchase a helmet on their own, use the code SQUADROOM, all one word, to get $20 off. Check them out at hardheadveterans.com and use that coupon code SQUADROOM to get $20 off your purchase. All right, back to the show. Were you calm? Yes. Yeah, I think... uh uh, on on the outside, uh, on on the inside, I knew it wasn't good. Uh, on the inside, even I began to have doubt. I think even um, eleven minutes. This one on uh, eleven minutes. I think most people watch um, a, a video clip and, and you watch fifteen or twenty seconds on CNN or, or Fox News. Mm-hmm. Am I allowed to say other oh, yeah, stations? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I think uh, people watch fifteen or twenty seconds of uh, of of that, and you can't imagine eleven minutes of that. I mean, that went on for 11 full minutes. And, and uh, I remember telling them, oh, the cops are coming. They got this. Look, they're on their way. I remember smiling and telling them, hey, calm down. They're on their way. I'm a, I'm a police officer. And as you tell them you're a police officer, you become a, a quasi-leader. Everybody clings to you. They grab your arms, your legs, everything they can. And they look, they look at you for direction, like you're, you're going to uh, save everything. But, but you feel vulnerable. Uh, the other guilt I feel with is, is watching um, police officers... Um, I wasn't hoping, um, n- nothing about it was hope, but it was uh, desperation watching to see if any of them were shot, um, because I was desperate for a firearm. Um, not that I hoped for it. Um, but you know, it was always in the back of my mind, how am I going to get a gun? And the plan was, is that if any of them were shot that I need to get to, um, a, a firearm, uh, to, to protect those, uh, you know, myself and those people around me. Uh, so you also understood that you might have to fight, uh, you know, uh, you know, hand to hand, you know, you, you, the idea of, uh, angles. And if I round this corner, what's my angle going to be? If there's a shooter, it was constant planning. You, you were assessing. I think it comes from my military background and being in law enforcement for 20 years. Uh, it really was your, your training does kick in. Um, the idea of hiding, never came to mind. And that's why I talk about fight or flight because you knew around any corner or you thought that around any corner, um, you were going to face danger, mm-hmm. but nothing about it was for me, uh, for me and those around me, nothing about it was to hide, uh, to crawl under a table, to crawl under a stage, to crawl under, um, a vendor, um, or in, in 
the porta potties, uh, all those were ruled out. No, nothing about me said to do that. Uh, everything about me t- said, you move in this direction and, and you accept whatever's around that corner. So you pushed the these how many women? Uh, at this point, it was uh, the group of four and then and then two other ladies. Were people gravitating towards you? Yes. Yeah, there were people who, who again, once they realize that you're a police officer, they, they hold on to your arms. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember there was uh, one lady. She, she's actually been on, on – on, uh, there's some photos of her, and, and she was on the news that uh, was shot in the leg, and uh, she was upset. But uh, she was able to walk and just – you know, being there by her side, hey, are you, are you okay? Are you able to walk? Uh, because you, you're doing a triage, I mean, you know, of, of everybody mm-hmm. and, and making sure that you can help those who you can help and those, the ones you can't. Again, it's, I put it, I, I put it to being like, a, you know, next to a hot stove. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it just got too hot that, that you, you, you couldn't, you couldn't stay there. Yeah. So what, what happens? Did you, you guys get out of the venue and, regroup at a hotel do you just leave them at the street and go back uh yeah what what ended up happening was uh we got to the tropicana hotel and i was standing on the outside and i began to do what you know we in law enforcement call a a roll call Mm -hmm. um maybe every agency calls it something different but we do a roll call i I sent out a group text uh with the group (laughs) the the group of people i was there with to make sure that, that they were okay um and as that's happening, I'm prepared to go back inside, and that's when the group of people I'm with, um, th- these girls, begin um, clinging to my arms, uh, begging me not to leave them. Um, one of them actually calls her husband, and their husband wants to talk to me on the phone and is asking me um, not to leave them, telling me that they're, you know, two of them are sisters, um, one's a grandmother, uh, they're all mothers. It's pretty intense. They're all married. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure. And... Um, so I wasn't expecting that. Um, uh, and so I was torn. In that moment, I was torn. And, and I wanted to make sure uh, that my friends were okay. Um, and as the text began to roll in that people were okay, I began to learn that uh, uh, some deputies who had worked uh, for me or had worked for my agency, uh, one had been shot twice in the chest and the leg, um, another spouse of a deputy who had worked for me, um, uh, his, his wife was shot and, uh, I just remember the emotion coming over and the need to want to pry these people off me and, and get back in there. And the decision at the time was, uh, to go back in and that quickly changed. And, uh, what happened was, um, people began to run out of the Tropicana hotel and were reporting an active shooter, uh, inside the hotel and the crowd was flooding out. Uh, and then moments after that, the same thing happened at the MGM Grand. And it began to work its way down the strip where people were saying, oh, there's an active shooter. And what was happening, what, what you didn't know at the time, was that uh, the people who were shot at the concert were making their way into these hotels and were saying there was a shooter and they were bleeding. Mm-hmm. And the people in the hotels didn't realize that it happened at the uh, at the concert. So they assumed it was inside, and they were coming out saying there's a shooter inside. And that created mass confusion. Um, and so my decisions to stay with this group of girls was the, the feeling of that I had been there and helped them, that they were four girls um, at one point had, had even gotten separated, um, to want to stay and, and, and protect them, especially given the fact that, to me, this was still active and going on like in the, in the immediate vicinity. Um, again, not knowing that this was 
one shooter 400, year away, 400 yards away and 36 floors in the air. And everything we know about uh, terrorism today, um, multiple shooters, um, maybe hitting one location uh, to, 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 yeah. to, to draw all your resources in and then hitting another location while your resources are tied it up. It would have been textbook, right? So the, yeah. Textbook. So, so to me, it all made sense. To right. me, that's how my mind was operating, having been in the military, having been through uh, my department's MACTAC training, uh, terrorism, counterterrorism uh, training and things like that. This made sense to me what was happening okay you know um this is drawing all the resources and now things are beginning to happen at all these uh, secondary and, and third mm-hmm. locations so you're struggling with this dilemma i mean by the time you made the decision to stay with them do you know that your friend your fellow deputy and then the spouse have been shot yes yeah at this point at this point i had i had just learned um, and in fact, I had already made the decision to stay with them had, had been made. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's about the time that the, this, uh, this, uh, you know, the information's coming in that, uh, this, this other shooter that, that, yeah, that was the spouse. Did she survive? Yes. They, they all survived. So you stay with them and how long till cops come to debrief them or, uh, the morning or how's that how uh, that go? no i i ended up um we ended up so we worked our way uh down the strip that's where i had my uh firearm was in my hotel room uh i went back uh to get it um and to protect them uh, got, were you at the mandalay bay no i was uh, uh i was down the street at the monte carlo okay they actually were staying at the mandalay bay uh-huh. uh, that's where they were so they didn't have a place to stay and we worked our way down across the MGM Grand all the way out into the Paris Hotel. And again, there were, there were reports. I think as we were getting to the Paris, there was, um, you know, five or six police cars uh, rolling in, um, all getting out with uh, shotguns and rifles, rushing into the Paris Hotel. Um, whether or not there was a report or, or maybe they just thought because it was the Paris Hotel and, and terrorism that they were just getting there to set up just in case uh, there was a, you know, third or fourth shooter, or, mm-hmm. you know, this was a distraction occurring down the street. Um, and I remember crossing and uh, getting to the Diablo Cantina, which is connected to the Monte Carlo, and everybody um, saying there was a shooter in the Monte Carlo. And that, that was the last. And we're quite a way down the strip at this point. Yeah. And I remember the crowd of people rushing into the Monte Carlo, and or I'm sorry, into the Diablo Cantina and, and crouching down under the tables and hiding. And again, that's where that... Uh, that fight came in. Um, at that point, that's where the, the group of girls I was with, I say, you know, find a table. There's a small hallway um, from that cantina that, that puts you into um, the the uh, the casino area of the Monte Carlo. But uh, nobody knew that. And so it was at that point, that, again, this, uh, this fight mentality came out that, you know, I need to go stand guard at the front door mm-hmm. and put up a fight for these people. Um, who are hiding under these tables because my, my mindset was if I could put up a fight at the front door, um, that the person's not going to want to come in here. Even, even if, even if I, you know, uh, was to lose, um, that odds are they'll have enough and, and, and they'll, they'll, they'll move on, but mm-hmm. I need to protect whoever's in there. And, uh, so I remember standing there for a little while and, um, nobody came to the door, uh, but I stood at the door, uh, guard, waiting to see if the, the this supposed shooter who was at the Monte Carlo was going to come out. And then uh, everybody was kind of, you know, frozen inside. And once I was confident that that didn't happen, that, you know, nobody was coming out the front, I made the decision to clear that long hallway um, to get them into the Monte Carlo Casino and um, 
kind of took a look around. It was business as usual in there. Nobody was panicking. Surreal, I yeah, imagine. Yeah. So it was kind of like, okay, you know, what, what you know, what's going on? Um, but I think everybody was hypersensitive and, and understandably so. Um, yeah. But then, you know, getting up to, you know, getting those people to my room that night, uh, making sure that uh, all my friends, I called, called my watch commander and uh, we were told that, uh, you know, we couldn't go to the hospital, um, that they weren't letting anybody in. Um, so uh, knowing that I had people that I knew that were shot there, that they weren't allowing us. Uh, I later learned that my uh, friend had lost his 20-year-old son, uh, which is hard for me to talk about, um, and, you know, had, had needed uh, help uh, recovering him. Uh, very difficult because I have a son that age. And um, so there were a lot of emotions, uh, a lot of emotions that night. And, um, you know, I learned a lot, and, and we go to this class, this leadership class that we're talking about. We learn about our values and our ethics and our morals and all that. And, um, you know, I could go on about um, internalizing this and and the things that I've gone through over the past several months to, to dissect it and, and um, the internal struggles that you that you faced. And, and you know, I, I learned a lot about myself that night. What did you learn about yourself that you like? Was there, was there a surprise? Was there something about yourself that you were surprised about that you like? Or did you just reaffirm uh, what think, you thought you knew? Well, well, I mean, it it it, it was uh, there was re- reaffirming. I think the one thing that took me off guard was, uh, um, you know, I'd gone home the next day and I, I did I wasn't able to sleep for a couple of days and and the night I was able to get some sleep, I went to bed and, and I had a dream, and in that dream, um, I'm standing on some metal bleachers, uh, just like you'd see it in any high school football game or soccer game, and okay. I'm st- I'm standing on these metal bleachers, and I'm overlooking this crowd of people and they're laying on this astroturf and um they're not moving and a faceless male subject comes up and he's wearing a black polo and some pants and uh, he he weighs me down and says hey i need you to help me change your clothes and he was a corner i could tell that he was a corner but he was faceless and he says i need your help uh to change your clothes and obviously we don't do that you know in law enforcement so um you know i contemplated in this dream um well we don't do that and i said but i'll help you you know, do, do, do you have some gloves? And I remember asking for some gloves and I, I glove up and I walk over and there's this black, uh, plastic trash bag and, uh, it's filled with clothes and I turn it upside down. I begin to shake the clothes out and the clothes, I'm, I'm having a hard time getting the clothes out and some begin to fall out and I'm reaching in and I'm pulling them out and these clothes begin to pile up and they pile up and they pile up. Like a and, bottomless bag yeah, of clothes. Yeah, but it was. I thought it was going to be bottomless, but then it, it stopped. Then finally it stopped, and I, I you know, kind of crumped the bag up and, and discarded it. And I began to try and change the clothes. And right at my feet, there are two people, um, a male and a female, um, again, faceless. And I began to try and change the clothes. And uh, I, I struggle. Uh, I, I struggle to change the clothes. Uh, they're male clothes that won't go on females, female clothes that won't go on males. They're too big. They're too small. And this struggling occurs, and I get frustrated. I get super frustrated. I'm trying to change clothes. I'm throwing clothes down. I get very upset and, and very angry to the point where I wind up waking up. And it wasn't until a few days later, like everybody else, uh, you know, in my agency, they, they wanted us to go speak with some people. And I'd seen a lot of things in my career. The, the, the most um, people I've seen killed in one place at one time was five. The second most was four. And so this hurt. This, this hurt more than anything else. So I said, you know, you know I'll talk to somebody uh, about this one. Because, again, this, this was different. For me, this was different. And um, I remember talking to a specialist 
And uh, they said, hey, are you having any nightmares? And I said, no, but I had a dream. And they said, you know, well, what was it? And I explained the same dream I explained to you. And uh, and uh, they said, well, we could tell you what that means if, if you're interested. And I said, uh, yeah, sure. If, if there's some meaning behind it, I, I'd like to know. And they said, well, Larry, the... Uh, you standing on those bleachers is symbolic of who and what you are. You're a police officer. You're there to overlook and protect people. And you standing on those bleachers overlooking those people, that's what that's symbolic of. And you being waved down and flagged down by the corner is, uh, is uh, your acceptance of the fact that these people have passed away. And the struggle you felt while you're trying to change their clothes, um, that struggle was you trying to change your outcome um, because that's – who and what you are, you want to help, you want to fix things. That's, that's what you do as a, as a police officer. And um, that struggle is that you weren't going to get the outcome you wanted, um, that uh, you weren't going to change that outcome. And that's why you, you were frustrated. And this is your mind's way of, uh, of, of uh, dealing with that, trying to process this information that you were overwhelmed with that night. And so when it, when it comes to a surprise, not that it was a surprise, but um, to me it's just it, you can't fake that. That's who and what you are to your core. Um, it, it's just who and what you are as a human being mm-hmm. and, and, and things like that, you know, they're not faked. Um, you know, have you had that dream since? Uh, no, I haven't. Just the one time. Yeah. Just the one time. Any other nightmares or anything like that? Uh, nothing like that. Uh, there's been a time or two. Um, you know, it's funny. We were, uh, there's been a time or two. I, w- when you hear gunfire now, I, I, uh, whether it's, uh, because I work at our training division, whether it's uh, simunitions or whatever, I, I process it. You know, I, I want to make sure it's it's fake. Um, I there was a couple times immediately following within the first couple of weeks or first couple of months that um, we were in class together and we were watching uh, Band of Brothers oh, yeah. and, and the uh, uh, I think it was episode one or two when mm-hmm. when uh, the, they're uh, attacking uh, the fifty cows and that that uh, gunfire occurred. I remember sitting in class and I, I don't know that I call it anxiety, but that definitely that feeling came back. How you mm-hmm. would feel in that situation uh, automatically related to Vegas. It was a trigger, um, and that uneasiness in my stomach, that nervousness, that uh, uh, that came back. But uh, really since then not not too much it it took about four or five months um you know for uh for things to kind of you know go away and i think with where i'm at now yeah how do you go back to work on monday i mean and i know you probably didn't go back to work that monday but i mean just simple simply returning to work and and going and and kind of picking up and even and I get that even though you weren't directly, like, you didn't get shot. But you had very close people to you get, get shot and hurt. And the, the strength to just carry on. I mean, was it a, did you have to find some resolve within yourself? Did you just put it out of your mind? Did you, uh, what was the, what was your process there? Um, I, I thought I'd, I'd be able to uh, go back. My, my first day back, I thought, I'll be fine. And I remember walking in and looking at my partner, a fellow sergeant of mine, and, and then my guys. And I walked in, I looked him right in the eyes, and uh, I broke down. I broke down in tears. I uh, couldn't stop crying. I, I remember apologizing several times over because I thought, I could do this. It's not going to bother me. Um, again, 20 years in law enforcement, or nearing 20 years at that point. Yeah. I thought, okay, I can handle this. I, I've seen this, um, and and it hurt. And, um, and uh, so I cried for probably a good hour and a half, thinking I'd be fine. Um, Was it because you felt that you were with people who 
cared for you and, and wanted you safe, or was it, or was it because these were people that you cared about and you saw saw the potential that this they could have been them? Um, you know, uh, I think it, it, it was it was a few things. It was seeing how upset my kids were. Um, obviously, the phone call to them, and in fact, you know, one of the things I didn't cover were my text messages. Um, my ex-wife had my boys that that night, and um, I remember texting her while the shooting was still going on, telling her to, to, to you know, that this is going on. Uh, and to me, the time, you know, I I knew the length of of time was significant, but I, I didn't, you know, to me, I felt like uh, I felt like the they knew, I like the news was already on this. I didn't realize that the news would be on it, so I was telling her to shut the news off and and um, that that I'm alive for now. Um, that, but to make sure the boys aren't watching, I'm alive for now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just, just, I wanted her to know to, to shut the news off. There's something going on. Uh, I'm here because to me, uh, even though I knew this was a long period of time, I, I just, you assume that the, that the media was already covering this, Mm -hmm. that there were helicopters up and, uh, it's just how your, your mind works. Mm -hmm. Um, but I just didn't, I knew I didn't want my kids seeing it. And so knowing how it impacted them, knowing how they cried when they saw their dad, Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think relief. Me, uh, yeah. the, the, the relief, uh, they were scared. They were angry. Uh, you know, um, angry at you or angry at the situation. I think at the situation, I think of the situation, scared, scared of losing their dad. Um, and then I always go back to, um, the, the, the regret. I think again, they, they call it the, the survivor's regret, the survivor's remorse. Uh, to me, those people were my heroes. I, uh, you know, I was a victim. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I survived. Um, but, uh, that I think is a thing a lot of people struggle with. Uh, I know I do. I know a lot of people do. I've, I've talked to, uh, other people in my department who were there and they struggle. They're happy to be alive, but there's guilt. You, you carry a lot of guilt and especially me because I would have laid down my lives for, for any one of those people. And, uh, and I mean that when I say it, mm-hmm. and, and I think there's a lot of people who feel that way, that, that, that you, that you wish there's more you, you, you could have done. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I think that was, that was part of being upset, you know, uh, that, that you made it and other people didn't. And there, there was a lot of guilt that, that you carried. And, uh, the next day I thought, okay, I, you know, I'll go back in, I'll try it again. I got to get back into this. And um, I made it till about three o'clock in the afternoon, and I'm sitting there typing away on my my computer, and just out of nowhere, I, I break down again for about another hour, hour and a half, and it gets to that point where I can't watch the news anymore. Everybody's, you know, and this is all that's on the news. At this, point, th- this so is all that's on the news, else. And, and, and I can't even watch it but th- mm-hmm. because because when because when you hear the gunfire again, they replay that 15 or 20 second clip. Nobody recorded for 11 minutes, and I don't think that's why people don't really comprehend what it was like because nobody re- recorded for 11 minutes mm-hmm. you, you a 15 or 20 second video and what i what i challenge everybody to do is is you know to take that and think about that for 11 minutes for 11 11 minutes that went on and um to where you begin to even have doubt in your own mind that you're going to leave here and i know there's a lot mm-hmm. of people who talk about that so so these the women you were with and you get up to your hotel room i the the dark humor of a cop, right? I have this vision of the of the quiet elevator ride up with like the elevator music going and nobody's saying anything, and you guys just experience this horrific thing in the middle of the the most surreal city in the country, yeah. in a casino, which is the most surreal environment to be in in the first mm-hmm. place. It had to be this total disconnect. But you stayed with them for 
for some time, and I think I mean, um, you willing to share some of the, the what what happened out of that? Yeah. So uh, I, one of the things that happened was, yeah, I, I went down and was able to get him something to eat and got him, uh, you know, um, a couple glasses of wine. I think they 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 <laughs> they, 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 little, yeah. they, they needed that, and um, uh, you know, as the night went on, we we sat there and we we watched the TV, and obviously they were all in the bed, and there was one in a chair, and I, I sat in the chair with with my gun by my side and making sure my friends were okay and really struggling with the fact that I couldn't go to, uh, go to the hospital. You know, I'd call my watch commander, let him know that uh, I was there and, mm-hmm. and that, you know, it, but, but being told you can't go do something, they're going to turn you away. This is what the department needs of you right now was, was, was difficult. What did the uh, department ask you to do? They, they just said that just don't, just don't go. You let don't, us know you're here. Do, do not go to the hospital. They're not going to let you in. We will update you with the status of, of, of these people. Mm-hmm. Um, th- those, you know, those, those were the things. Uh, wanting to go out and, and see if there's more you could do. But as you watch the news, you realize, okay, this is probably one shooter. Um, there's no need for you to, to, to go rushing out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, at the time, I, I just had, you know, a, a revolver. It was, you know, a, a backup or a gun that I carry. So um, not much you're going to do with it. Not, not much you're going to do. No. And, and, you know, especially with automatic gunfire. So uh, that was what that was. Uh, but, uh, you know, the next the next morning when things kind of calmed down and, um, you know, things had settled and, and, and the dust had kind of cleared and everybody's still dealing with things, uh, they decided, hey, we could we could get back to their portion of the hotel, uh, which is, it was an offshoot. So you have the Mandalay Bay. They were actually at, I believe it was the Delano, which is kind of right mm-hmm. behind it. So they'd open up the Delano where, where they could go back in. And um, as the, you know, they were leaving, you know, we had talked and they had thanked me. And um, Jen was very upset about letting me go. There was there was an instant connection. I think in that moment laying on the ground, what, what you saw, as weird as it was, uh, as weird as it was, um, maybe it's a little crazy for me to say, but I, I ended up, you know, falling in love and, 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 uh, you know, and I know, uh, she did too. And, and so, um, what, what I saw was the, the innocence and there was an instantaneous, uh, connection that, mm-hmm. um, I've never, I've never felt before. And you knew it in those moments on the ground. And then just the more time we were there together in the hotel room, even though she sat on the bed and I was over in the chair with, with a gun in my lap, you know, um, watching the TV, um, it, it was pretty strong. You could sense it. You knew she wanted to be by me and I wanted to be by her. Hmm. Uh, but it, it, it seemed awkward because you, you had just met and, you know, her right. best friends and, and, and stuff were there. Uh, but as she left uh, in the morning and was going back to her hotel, they had thanked me. And uh, I, you know, since our dance was rudely interrupted, I had told her that I would, I would promise that uh, we would finish our dance. And uh, we had an opportunity to do that uh, uh, at, at a country concert in, in Utah. I had uh, uh, gotten us some, some tickets and we had gone up and I'd actually written one of uh, the music stars, Luke Bryan's, uh, uh, his, his uh, manager and had kind of told him our story and was hoping to get, hoping to get a dance with, you know, with, with just her and I, and mm. we got some pit tickets and, and, uh, you know, I asked her to dance and we were able to, we were able to, to, to finish that. And things have been good. You know, I've been back several times, uh, to Utah. She's been here to California to see each other. And, and so that side of things is, uh, going pretty well. That's an amazing, uh, talk about a, a, Silver lining isn't even the right word because there was such this this event, but it's it's more than that. I mean, it's something something positive is and growing, 
uh, and is coming out of this, a light. Yeah. It, well, I find most of my healing is being there for her and her friends. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, all of them feel that there's a connection, I think, for those people who are there. People tell you all the time, or amongst uh, those of us who are there, people say, we can only imagine, we can only imagine. And um, when we hear that, and I don't want to speak for everybody, but for me and the people I know, our first thoughts are like, yeah, you, you can't imagine. And, and um, so there's a connection between those of us who are there. And even if I don't know those people, if I know they were there, um, I, I get goosebumps even thinking about it. Like right now, just talking about it. Uh, there, there's just this connection that, that you know and that you understand um, how they feel, how they felt, what they went through. Um, and so the, most of them said, look, I can't talk to my husband about it. And they want to call him, you know, they want to talk to me. And uh, so I think we get our strength from being there for one another, from mm-hmm. reaching out and talking to one another. Um, the, the husbands have been nothing but, but uh, great of the, you know, uh, Jen's friends who were there. Um, you know, I went up and, and watched, um, you know, a Pop Warner football game. Uh, for one of their kids, you know, um, the following weekend, uh, and had people come and thank me, you know, people from Arizona, Colorado, uh, Nevada, California, you know, for what happened that night. So I got a a lot of strength from just being there for those people and and helping them. You know, there's a correlation there or a, I mean, a similarity, I think, to when an officer's involved in a shooting or a stress event or an IA that's maybe unfounded and stuff where, we can come or I can comfort them as best I can, but I may not know what they're going through. Um, when you went back to work and people were trying to connect with you and comfort you, what were the things, what were people doing right or doing wrong? And I don't mean wrong, like they were intentional, but maybe misguided. They were trying to help, but maybe was there anything that people were doing or advice you can give to people when they want to reach out to a partner who's having a hard time with something? What are the right ways to do it versus maybe what the wrong ways are? Yeah, well, I mean, again, I don't want to speak for everybody. Uh, there was another uh, uh, lady who works with me at my work location whose husband is a sergeant, now lieutenant, uh, just promoted. Uh, she was there. She had a hard time with it. She, she didn't come back to work for, I think, a month to six weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, really, um, what I could tell you is after this incident, um, I didn't want to talk about it. Uh, I, I wanted to be left alone. Uh, I didn't, I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to hear people tell me like, um, I can only imagine, uh, because I don't think they could fully grasp, uh, what it was like to see that, uh, or what it was like to be there. And I think the, the biggest thing, um, with, with all of that, uh, for me probably had to do more with, um, I didn't want to hear about everybody else's little problems or similarities or this one time or war stories mm-hmm. or things that they had been through. Mm-hmm. Um, I, those were triggers for me. Um, you know, again, things that I would hear, uh, that was the thing that I would tell people to, 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 to kind of stay away from, you know, um, to, to try and I can only imagine what you went through. And again, that's just me. I, I can't speak for everybody, but, but I, I will tell you that the one thing that, that really did, you know, trigger me or bother me was the idea that, uh, life goes on for everybody around you. Um, but the, but, uh, the people who were there were impacted. So the little things in life, um, the deadline, you know, that the boss has for something, the, Hey, we got this coming up and, you know, can I get you to do this for Mm -hmm. me? Uh, the biggest thing in the world to these people that you work for, um, even though my department was very good about, Hey, take as much time as you need this and that there was always still those pressures of, Hey, by the way, you know, can you get this done? Yeah. Um, 
all that was irrelevant. There was a, uh, I think uh, there was a bigger understanding of what's important in life following events mm-hmm. like that, um, that it's life that's important. It's family that's important. Um, and there's this, this realization that everything else is kind of, it's little, you know, everything else is little. Which is a great perspective to have. I mean, we all try it. Like we always say that we're supposed to do those things. And we always say, you know, at the end of our careers that we wish we spent more time with the kids or with the family. But is that, is that, are you able to bring with you still an appreciation for that mindset? Maybe not a, cause I think it can, it can get real angsty and real corrosive to stay like that for a long period of time. Yeah. Cause you will start to kind of go down your own rabbit hole of, of, of kind of focusing on this one thing when the world does need to move on or you know, yeah. other people move on, but maintaining a, an understanding that uh, I guess it's a gratitude. I mean, you're, you what I'm hearing is a, is a, you're in a roundabout way. You're saying you, you just were very, you had a lot of gratitude for the every day, the, you know, the basics, the family and the fact that you're here and the fact that you've met Jen and a lot of these other things that we sometimes mistake as important, weren't important to you anymore. Right. Are you, have you shifted or has it shifted your, uh, mindset at all to any sort of a bigger sense of gratitude have you lost it is it uh you know where are you at with that um no i think uh where i'm at with it now is uh you know i understand everything uh that's that that's important uh you know i i absolutely pay uh more attention uh to my boys um i actually i'm able to talk about it more now i know initially my department wanted me to talk about it and I, I didn't want to, you know, obviously there's some good publicity that could come out of it for law enforcement agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they left it at our discretion. Um, but at the time I didn't want recognition for it. I didn't feel like I did anything unique. Although the, you know, uh, the people I helped that night would, would say otherwise, but for me, I, I didn't feel anything um, that I did anything unique, but my, my appreciation is just, um, to be able to talk about it to, and to continue to help those people who were there, like, to have these conversations. Um, the things that I do in my agency is I, I now teach and, and I talk about this. I talk about um, understanding how you might respond or what you think about what you think you might know about yourself, how all that changes, mm-hmm. how you think you understand your values, your morals, your ethics. Um, uh, for me to, to have this experience, um, it was, it was a good, I'm a deep thinker. So, um, it was, it was a good way for me to kind of assess myself mm-hmm. and, and apply that to who and what I am in law enforcement. And, and my life makes sense. You know, it's, uh, it's kind of driven me, uh, my, my entire life since, you know, since high school football, uh, what got me to where I am is doing the right things for the right reasons and, and, um, having the appreciation for, you know, what people call the little things and what are the big things It's your family, you know, and, and, uh, being there for people. The little, the little things are the big things. Absolutely. Larry, I appreciate you, uh, your willingness to talk about it. You know, I mean, when you first told this story, you're very open about it. Um, I think there's a lot to be learned from just, you know, what, what you went through, but there's lessons in that for all of us. Uh, and, and the stuff you touched on and how we can, you know, always find ways to, to lead others and be, uh, and be there for people we've never met. And that's, that's one of the most remarkable parts of the story is you took it upon yourself to find these women who needed a guide and, uh, you recognize that and that's the role you took and that's the role you've been taking your, your whole life. Uh, so 
I appreciate you sharing that with us and, and being on here and being willing to talk about it. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I, I, uh, you know, I, 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 uh, if, I hope it helps other people, uh, and gets them to understand and relate with, you know, what happened that night. And I think it most, it most definitely will, because I mean, you think about, you're one of only a handful of cops in the United States who experienced that on the audience side. Right. And I just, so as luck would have it, uh, last week was in class in an active shooter, uh, like an ICS active shooter response class, uh, which was a tabletop. It was a class done by FEMA, very high end. So that means they have lots of equipment and funding. And we ran through all these scenarios from a basic school shooting all the way up to a Paris style attack. Right. And mostly it was my agency in the room, uh, but the, except for one guy, mm-hmm. uh, and his name, uh, was Brandon Clark and Brandon was a Las Vegas Metro Sergeant. And his twin brother, Casey, is a Las Vegas Metro detective. And I, rec- and I recognized Brandon before I ever spoke to him. I said, I know that guy from somewhere. I can't figure out why. And then he said he's from Vegas Metro. And uh, if Brandon's listening, I'm going to be embarrassed to admit this, but I had to, like, Google him under the table because I'm like, I know that guy from somewhere. Maybe we've been to a training together or something. And his story on the on the response side, on the officer response side, is fascinating too. He he's he works uh, very similar to you. He works in their training division, and he was instrumental in writing their active shooter response policy. Mm-hmm. And so he had done a lot of this. He'd done a lot of training and in-service training on these guys. And his twin brother was a detective. Never works overtime. He just does his detective thing and goes home. And. Uh, his brother was looking to make a little extra money for a trip coming up, so he signs up as overtime for this shit, for this concert. First overtime shift he's worked in years. And uh, figures it's a country concert. He likes the music. He'll go out there. He'll make some extra money, get to watch his show. Well, when the rounds start going off, Brandon gets the page. Brandon comes into work. He goes to the command post because that's where he's assigned as his job. And he's working the command post when uh, I think a lieutenant or captain comes up to him and says, hey, just so you know, your brother's all right. And doesn't register to him that he doesn't even know his brother's working. Doesn't register that yeah. his brother's there. So he brushes off the comment at first. And then a follow-up comment is made that, you know, he's at the hospital, but he's going to survive. And it turns out his brother was shot through the neck uh, and, and, and did survive. And I think it's going to make a full recovery. But it was interesting that here I was in the middle of Central California taking this class. And there's this one guy... And I think I recognized him because of the media coverage, because he, the fact that he had a twin brother and this dynamic got a lot of media. But here I am in Central California taking this one class at this Mormon church out in the middle of nowhere, and I, I talk to start talking to this guy, and I learn this story, and he's got an intense story about that whole event himself, right from the from the law response side. Yeah. And we talk uh, to you, and we get the get this and you can take that into a much bigger concept of all the people we interact with, all the people that we touch in our lives um, have something. And it's probably not as big as Vegas for, but there are people we interact with every day. We pass every day on the street who were at Vegas or maybe were in Paris or had something major event in their life where they, um, their life shifted. And it's, I think one of our things that we have the ability as law enforcement officers to uh, 
touch people's lives in such a positive way when we take that when we take that oath and we take that energy seriously and we can do what you did which is direct six woman, women towards safety yeah. awesome stuff man yeah. yeah thanks for being here all right thanks yeah if uh if it's the one thing i'd say i think it was teddy roosevelt who said uh fear is reaction encourages decision and uh that that's true um I believe it was Teddy Roosevelt who said that. But uh, if it's not, I love it because I love Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll, yeah. So that's a good one to end on. Thanks for being here, man. <laughs> no, no problem. Take, thanks for having me. All right. If you like this episode of The Squadron, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or on the podcast player of your choice. Uh, it helps support the show and helps us spread the word. Also want to thank Blue Line Flex, a law enforcement-owned clothing apparel company, and Hardhead Veterans for their support of the show. They help us keep the lights on here pay for the servers, do all those sorts of stuff. And they give us the opportunity to go out and do some bigger things that we're going to accomplish this year. Uh, I know that uh, episodes have been sparse over the summer. Uh, a couple of you have commented or sent emails. I'm sorry about that. Uh, it is what it is with summer and the kids and all that going on. Lots of stuff happening as well. Uh, studying for two different promotional exams. But uh, more uh, exciting even than that is that I have a TED Talk that's going to be coming in September. Uh, which is both absolutely exciting and completely terrifying all at the same time. Uh, that'll be available online a couple of weeks after it's done. So we'll uh, about in October, we'll be looking for that. But I am in intense writing and study and practice mode, and that is taking a lot of time on top of just going to night shift and everything else. But uh, appreciate everybody who's been checking in and making sure that I'm still alive. Uh, if you aren't signed up for our, our mailing list, make sure you do that too. Go to our website, thesquadroom.net. You can sign up for the mailing list right there. Or if you text the squadroom, all one word to 44222, we can get you signed up uh, right from your phone. If you're on Facebook, go out to Facebook, search the squadroom group, squadroom podcast group. We have a closed group for law enforcement people only and uh, people aspiring to be in law enforcement. We answer questions. Lots of new guys in there asking questions, uh, veterans sharing ideas and tips. Uh, and I'm in there doing uh, live stuff every so often. And we'll be doing more of that. Uh, Facebook Live stuff uh, as as uh, the summer progresses and as the podcast progresses. But that's all I got for now. Until next time, everyone, take care of each other and stay safe. <laughs>